through 13. Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Good to be with you on this Lord's Day. I love being with God's people, and I love you, my church family, so it is good good to be with you. Near the end of his life, Benjamin Franklin was one of the most well-known figures uh, in the world. And he was getting up there in years, this founding father of the United States, this scientist, this elder statesman, this man of of many, many talents and gifts. He was getting near the end of his life, and he received a letter from Ezra Stiles, uh, probably a name you haven't heard of. Ezra was uh, the president of Yale University. He was a pastor, and he was concerned for the eternal destiny of Benjamin Franklin. He is getting near the end, and so he writes him a letter. In those days, interestingly, just a side comment here, the universities, the leading universities like Yale, one of the main things they did is prepare men to be ministers of the gospel, to, bring, to be preachers. 
What a cool thing to have someone like the president of Yale University reaching out to communicate the gospel to Benjamin Franklin. He does this in a letter. There's some, some specific things about we want a portrait of you for our hallway and things like that in this letter. But I think the real reason that Ezra wrote this letter was to find out where he was at spiritually. Let me read part of it to you. I've left the capitalization and the uh, spelling and so forth uh, the, way that, the way that it was written uh, in the late 1700s, the way that they wrote. He writes this, Sir, as much as I know of Dr. Franklin, I have not an idea of his religious sentiments. I wish to know the opinion of my venerable friend concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He will not impute this to impertinence or improper curiosity. He's sounding so formal here from our day. It doesn't even sound like he's writing the letter to Benjamin Franklin. He's got this uh, amazing reverence for this guy. He goes on in this letter, Ezra does, and he says, "In, in one who for so many years has continued to love, estimate, and reverence his abilities and literary character with an ardor and affection bordering on adoration. I think he was a fan of Ben Franklin. If I have said too much, let the request be blotted out and be no more. And yet I shall never cease to wish you that happy immortality which I believe Jesus alone has purchased for the virtuous and truly good of every religious denomination in Christendom and for those of every age, nation, and mythology who reverence the deity and are filled with integrity, righteousness, and benevolence, wishing you every blessing. I am, dear sir, your most obedient servant, Ezra Stiles. I don't know if you were tracking with all of that. Did you get what he's saying? No, you don't. What he was saying (laughs) in all these crazy and fancy words He was saying two things, I think. One is, I really respect you, Benjamin Franklin, and you can just ignore this request if you'd like. Just ignore this if I'm prying too deep. But tell me what you think about Jesus of Nazareth. I'm concerned about your eternal destiny. That's what he was saying in that fancy language. So I've got a response now from Benjamin Franklin. As it turns out, he wrote this response about a month before he dies. I think he may be a little bit clearer. He writes in his response, he says, Reverend and dear sir, you desire to know something of my religion. It is the first time I have been questioned upon it. But I do not take your curiosity amiss and shall endeavor in a few words to gratify it. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, this is what he's writing to him about. He's writing to his friend. What do you believe about Jesus? As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. Christianity has corrupting changes. And I have with most of the present dissenters in England some doubts to his 
some doubts as to his divinity. Though it, though it a question, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it and think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. I see no harm, however, in its being believed, the deity of Christ. I see no harm, however, in its being believed. If that belief has the good consequence, as probably it has, of making his doctrines more respected and better observed, I shall only add, respecting myself, that having experienced the goodness of that being in conducting me prosperously through a long life, I have no doubt of its continuance in the next, though without the smallest conceit of meriting such goodness. With great and sincere sincere esteem and affection, I am, dear sir, your obliged old friend and most obedient, humble servant, B. Franklin. Would you get tired writing letters like that, having to sign off uh, like that and so on? I think you tracked with what he's saying. Uh, to paraphrase what Benjamin Franklin is saying here, he, he's very respectful, obviously, and even deferential to Ezra Stiles, but he's basically saying, I'm with the liberals in England when it comes to Jesus. I do not see him as God. I do not see him as the Son of God. He, he's a theist, but he is, he is not a Christian, Benjamin Franklin. But he's trying to let his friend know that he thinks he's going to be okay. Well, today, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, one of the main things, one of the main thrusts that Mark is saying here at the beginning of his gospel and he's saying throughout his gospel is that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. That Jesus is God the Son. And our passage today would have been a great passage had Ezra and Benjamin Franklin been able to spend some time together for Ezra to, to point out that Jesus uh, was divine, that he was truly God, that, that there is evidence for this in the scriptures and elsewhere. And so my purpose today, very simply, is to help you and I, through our doubts, through our struggles, to just pour fuel on your hearts and souls from the word of God, pour fuel on your hearts and souls so that you will believe increasingly that Jesus is the Son of God. I think we believe that, but there's times where we struggle and we doubt. Again, this is one of the primary themes of Mark's gospel, if not the primary theme. Let's look at just the first phrase, the title of Mark's gospel here in one one, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first phrase or the title, if you will, of this gospel identifies Jesus as in relationship to God as his son. He is not just a man. He is not just a great religious teacher. He is not someone who just happens to be at the top of the heap of religious leaders around, uh, across the centuries. He is the Son of God. Perhaps the climax in Mark's Gospel is in chapter 15. We can look at this on the screen. When this Roman centurion, this soldier, is there at the foot of the cross, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. So again, perhaps the primary theme in Mark's Gospel is to convince the reader of his Gospel that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is God the Son. And so what I want to do in the remainder of our time, we're going to look at six reasons in this very short passage 
six reasons that Jesus is the Son of God, and right here at the beginning of this uh, book, of this gospel. So let's begin. Take a look at verse 9 with me. Begin looking at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, verse 9 is one of these verses we could just run past, but there is stuff for us to see here in verse 9. If we back up to verses 7 and 8, what has just happened, what we looked at last week, is John the Baptist, his message is recorded in verse 7, which is, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John the Baptist, in verses 7 and in verse 8, John is contrasting his baptism with Jesus' baptism. I'm baptizing you with water, but Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, this one that is coming, I am not worthy to even unstrap his sandals. But in the very next verse, not only does he not unstrap his sandals, he does something far beyond that. He actually baptizes Jesus. And Mark, this this literary uh, writer, this, this writer of the gospel is wanting us to see this contrast. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. The very next verse, verse 9, at this time Jesus came from Nazareth and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So we see Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world, who doesn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but he is modeling for us what we are to do and he is demonstrating humility. Humility, one of the core things that God is looking for by his grace to see in you and in me and in his followers. Humility. And this is the first, uh, the first reason that I have to believe that Jesus is in the Son of God. And I'm saying this just because this is so unexpected. We don't expect, if we're going to have a man-made Savior, a man-made God, we don't expect him to come and, and to submit himself to the Father and to serve others by washing their feet, by submitting himself to, a, a, to baptism, to John's baptism. We see the humility of Jesus in contrast to his greatness and his deity. I think this is one of the arguments for him being the Son of God. And there is, uh, there is a message in here for us as far as pursuing humility. Augustine says this about humility. He says, I know, of course, what ingenuity and force of arguments are needed to convince proud men and proud women of the power of humility. Its loftiness is above the pinnacles of earthly greatness, which, which are shaken by the shifting winds of time. Humility is not only something that we see in our Savior, but by His grace, it's something that we see in one another. And I see it in our, in our church family. I saw it just uh, a week ago Friday, as many of us were gathered at the Talbots' home, uh, it was like a party out in the front yard. How many of you were, were there a week ago? For, for you visitors, Pastor Adam uh, Talbot, we just sent them off a week ago Friday. And there were conversations happening all over his front yard and pizza and all kinds of fun happening out front there. And I was a part of that fun. As I walk into their home, there were various people uh, scrubbing floors and, and cleaning sinks and doing uh, kind of nasty sort of work. And some of these folks uh, were, were well-to-do folks. They probably could have paid people very easily to do this and not be serving them in this way. But humility is something that the Lord Jesus 
is looking for in you and me, and it's something that he demonstrates throughout his life here at the very beginning of his ministry, being baptized, submitting himself to the baptism of John. A demonstration of humility, an example for us. And by his grace, he will help us to serve one another and to point people to the gospel. So this is the first thing that I'm seeing here in, in verse 9. Humility as an evidence, as a reason for Jesus being the Son of God. Are you with me, church? Are you with me so far? Let me say that one more time. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. All right, we're moving on here. So let's move on to verse 10. So we have this baptism by John in the Jordan River. Look at verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Now again, we can rush past verse 10, but the Lord wants us to see something here. Now remember, all the Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem has been traveling out to the desert to be baptized by John the Baptist. Tons and tons of people. We saw this last week. John is trying to communicate tons and tons of people have been baptized by John. But none of them was their baptism like this. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, I think John, under inspiration of the Spirit, has written this in such a way so that we see this isn't about John himself. John didn't have really the power to baptize Jesus. He doesn't even, he's not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. But as he comes up out of the water, not as John's baptizing him, but as he's coming out, he's, as he's coming out of the water, he saw he- the heavens being torn open. The, the, the sky, I mean, just I, it's hard to imagine exactly what they saw. We learn from the other gospel writers that John and Jesus at least saw this. The, the sky splitting apart, the, the heavens parting. This is not an ordinary baptism because this is not an ordinary individual. If our friend Ezra Stiles had had opportunity to sit down with Benjamin Franklin, this could be one of the places that he could turn to in the Scriptures and say there were lots and lots of people baptized, but only one of them, when he was baptized, the heavens were separated. So there was a cosmic impact around the life of Jesus right here at the beginning of his ministry. This is another reason to believe that he is the Son of God. Again, a very simple purpose in today's sermon to help pour fuel on our faith and our hearts in believing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He had a cosmic impact on the heavens, on the stars, uh, on the the sun, both at his baptism and when he's on the cross. Crazy and cosmic things happening. And this was actually prophesied about and this was prayed about by Isaiah in his last prayer. In Isaiah 63 and 64, there's a lengthy prayer. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. Centuries before this, Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. The heavens were rent when Jesus came down. The reader of the Old Testament, as he's reading the Gospel of Mark, would recognize these sorts of things. These prophecies have been fulfilled. This is not just a religious leader. This is not the guy at the top of the heap of of men who have founded religions. This is God the Son. This is the Son of God. So his humility, his cosmic impact. Let's continue on in verse 10. 
Verse 10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So we see the Holy Spirit coming upon him in addition to the heavens being rent apart. And so his union with God the Holy Spirit is another evidence, another reason for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's continue on and look at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So here John and Jesus hear audible words of God the Father. You are my Son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We have in these just couple verses here, verses 9 through 11, one of the most uh, clear passages giving us evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as three persons in one essence. We don't have the word Trinity here, but let's, let's look at this again closely. Not only do we have evidence here for Jesus being the Son of God, but for God being three persons. Jesus being God, the, the heavens are torn open, but then the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, de- descends on Him, and then we have the Father speaking in verse 11 audibly. So we have all three persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interacting. And so this helps us understand who God is. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He is one. He is one essence. It is a mystery, and yet we see this here. Mark wants us to see these things as we read his gospel. He especially wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. One commentator uh, so, so point number four, I've got six of them. Point number four is his audible and divine endorsement by God the Father that was audible, that was heard by those that were there, at least by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself. One commentator writes this. He says, Mark introduces the central figure of his gospel, whereas God had previously spoken through Scripture. In verses 2 and 3, we have these prophecies about John the Baptist. And then through his prophet, last week we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, and he himself now speaks directly from heaven to identify Jesus as his beloved son. So he's introducing Jesus as the beloved son. Okay, let's move on, verses 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days. So at once, this first word here in verse 12 is a a word that Mark uses 42 times in his gospel. For those of you that weren't here last week, I mentioned that that Mark is kind of like the newspaper reporter of the gospels, of the four gospels. He moves quickly through this book. We're going to see lots and lots of action and moving quickly. And then things transpire very quickly in his book. Immediately, at once, 42 times, he uses this word in verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. So we see here uh, obedience. Jesus' obedience. I've read this passage many times. I'm not sure that I saw it until this week. Jesus is obedient to the Spirit here to go out into the desert for 40 days. So Another evidence for Jesus being the Son of God is his obedience. His obedience to the law is perfect. His obedience to the commandments, to the laws of Moses and his obedience here to the Holy Spirit to go out into the desert for 40 days. 
It's interesting that Mark does not mention a lot of the details of this time in the desert, that he was fasting throughout that time. He doesn't mention the specific temptations. But he, he was in the desert 40 days obeying uh, the spirit that sent him out into the desert. So obedience is not only something that we see in Jesus, but Jesus wants to see obedience in us. And I'm not sure about you, but this is uh, something that is a struggle of mine. Anybody out there struggle with obeying the word of God? We struggle with obeying the word of God. The good news of the gospel is that God has given us his Holy Spirit in order to obey and to live out his commandments and to live out Uh, the word of God. He hasn't left us alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit who empowers us and helps us. And our God is a God of grace who helps us to obey. Um, I'll tell you a short story here uh, of of an example, a simple example of obedience of a seven-year-old boy. A seven-year-old boy who does not like vegetables. Anybody relate with that? I can relate to that when I was a kid. So this seven-year-old boy, he's been brought up in a gospel home. He knows the word of God, and he, uh, he knows what obedience is. And when he's at home and he gets this green stuff on his plate, he often uh, does not want to eat that and kind of puts up a fit at home. But he knows that he is to honor his father and mother. He knows that that Fifth commandment also applies to authorities and other people's parents and teachers and so on. So he goes to a friend's home and he's having dinner, the seven-year-old boy at this friend's house, and the plate gets put before him and it is just covered with green stuff. I mean, it looks like, you guys have one of those green toters at home that you put all the yard waste in? His plate looks like yard waste to him. As he looks at this thing, he's thinking, I need to take this out and dump it in to uh, the toter. But he's, he's a Christian, and he understands that God wants him to honor these folks that are in front of them. And, uh, and, and he knows he actually can uh, eat this. And so instead of relying on the flesh and, and uh, protesting and whatever, he's asking for God's help. Asking for God's help. And this little boy makes this step in sanctification. You know, he's got his milk right there. So he gets this stuff in and just, just washes the stuff down. Anybody ever been there? This might be part of my childhood, what, what, I'm, what I'm telling you. Actually, it's not. But, but so he, he relies upon God and he's able to do this and honor the Lord and, and, just, and just eat this stuff. To eat this stuff, a simple step of growth and obedience. Jesus is modeling obedience to us. He is modeling humility here at the beginning of his gospel. And John is communicating to us that he is unique, that he is the sent one, that he is divine, that he is not just a religious leader. So we see his obedience in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at the last, uh, last verse here, verse uh, 13 and following. Uh, let me begin at 12. So at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So he's with the wild animals. I think this is one of the things, Mark leaves lots of things out that are in other Gospels, but then occasionally he mentions things. This is one of the things that is peculiar to Mark. 
And I think what he's saying here at the end of verse 13 is that there are physical threats and there are spiritual threats that came to Jesus during these 40 days. And without going into details, the implication here is that he was able to sustain and make it through these threats of the wild animals and the threats of the temptation of Satan that are detailed out in the other gospels. The angels attended him and he made it through. He had power over all of these things. And he is the son of God. So the final uh, evidence to pour fuel on our hearts that Jesus is the son of God is his power over temptations and threats. One commentator writes this. He said, what is rarely, if ever, remarked is that Mark does not put the wild beasts with Jesus, rather Jesus with them. Since uh, the Greek phrase for uh, the wild beast connotes wildness, his being with them without harm or even attack carries Mark's point. The wildness of the beasts with which Jesus is present without harmful consequences bears witness to his being God's son, the stronger one of whom John the baptizer spoke. Jesus is God's son. He made it through. These 40 days of temptations with wild beasts around him. He made it through all of the temptations that Satan threw at him. The temptation of power and and the temptation of food and all of these things. He, He makes it through. The good news of the gospel of Jesus, and let me close with this, is that God has promised for every believer to be able to overcome temptation. The power that Jesus has is in every believer. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This same Christ who made it through these 40 hours, these 40, uh, 40 days rather, he made it through these 40 days with his overwhelming temptation, physical threats, spiritual threats, that same power, the resurrection power of Christ is in me and in you. We can overcome whatever comes our way. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What we have here in the beginning of Mark's Gospel is just a really clear picture that He is the Son of God. And we have tremendous encouragement in the power of the gospel for you and I to resist temptation just as Jesus has. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful, God, for your word. We're thankful for the truth of Jesus being the Son of God. Lord, I want to pray especially today for those who who are struggling perhaps with doubts about Christianity as a whole, or about the person of Jesus in particular. Lord, we pray that this historically reliable Word of God would speak loud into our hearts and minds today and as often as we read it. Lord, I pray that our faith would increase, that our doubts would decrease, and that we would be trusting and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us day in and day out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.